Okay, uh, if you have your Bible, uh, open and find Revelation chapter 13. We are picking back up in our study through Revelation. Obviously, we've been away from it for at least a couple of weeks, some of you even longer. I'm really grateful for Greg Key and uh, Riley Hambrick for teaching the last couple of Sundays uh, while I was away. Just before I left, some of you were here. Many of you were not yet back um, from Christmas break. We considered Revelation chapter 12. So I feel like I need to review a little bit to give you some background to what we're going to study today in chapter 13. Chapter 12 was a pivotal chapter in the, in the book. And just to review for a second why I said that, um, it was, it was, it's important for a couple of reasons. One is not surprising. Chapter 12 begins the fourth of the seven cyclical sections in the book of Revelation. Remember, all, each of those cyclical sections uh, describe the whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And so chapter 12 began the fourth of those seven sections. Uh, and um, that is, that's always important to note, but it's not something that you should be, it's something you should be quite familiar with by this point. The other reason why chapter 12 was pivotal was because, and, it's, and I had to bring this out because I feel like I, I don't recall saying this at the outset of our study, that while there are seven cyclical sections of the book of Revelation, there are two main divisions, first half and second half. And um, the, the, there's, a, there's a difference between the first half of the book and the second half of the book, which is what? The first half, chapters 1 through 11, uh, focused mainly on the church in the world, uh, and the persecution the church in the world faces, triumphant in the end, but but the church uh, still is is harassed and 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 faces difficulty in the world. And and just think about how we saw that in the first half. You had um, you had the letters to the seven churches and the and the, the 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 struggles that they faced described in those letters. You had the seven seals. Um, and, and many of those early seals had to do with hardship of the church in the world and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, and that's, that's the first half of the book. The second half, when you get to chapter 12 through the end of the book, the focus shifts a little slightly. How? There's still going to be a, a focus on the, the hardship that the church faces in the world and the persecution that it endures, but the shift that you see in the second half is that it begins to pull back the curtains just a little bit uh, to the, I say heavenly, but certainly spiritual struggle that is, that is going on behind the scenes that, is, that gives a little bit of explanation to why there is so much hardship in the world. The, the, the spiritual uh, battle that is going on that, that gives the reason why the church is so persecuted in the world. Um, there are spiritual forces behind the realities that we see. That is part of, 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 a, of Christian truth. That is part of, of a Christian description of, real, of the reality of the world we live in that we need to make sure that we take into account. Um, spiritual realities that we cannot presently see do affect and impact the world we live in. I just spent two weeks in East Africa. And there is a wide gulf between the worldview there 
just sort of the innate worldview there and the worldview here. Um, in East Africa, they have a much, much, much more spiritual outlook on everything. Um, the, 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 you know, it's often taken to the absolute extreme, though. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a demon in every rock, and there's a, they're, they're, we're, we're totally at their mercies kind of uh, mindset. We might see the, from where we sit, we might see the error in that, but we're on the other extreme very often, where we, we don't talk about spiritual influences at all. We seem to gravitate toward a materialistic explanation to everything that, that comes into our lives. But Scripture puts the truth somewhere right in the middle, um, uh, that, that there are spiritual forces at play in this world. We are not at their mercies, right? God is sovereign over them, but they're there, and we need to know about them. And, 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 and that is clearly seen in the second half of Revelation. And because of that shift, when we cross midfield into chapter 12, we're going to start seeing characters that we haven't yet encountered in the book of Revelation in the first half. Um, that was true in chapter 12, just to review that very quickly, where there was a clear focus on the dragon and the woman. The dragon being Satan himself, and the woman being uh, the people of God, right? And, and the, the dragon uh, was presented to us in that chapter as trying to prevent the first coming of Christ to begin with. And we saw Old Testament examples of, of how uh, there was persecution against the Jews, and they were threatened extinction at times and which would have compromised the coming of Christ at all. We saw even in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, King Herod giving the decree to, to murder all babies under, all male children under two years old, which would have put to death the Messiah had not an angel warned Joseph and Mary in a dream to flee and save his life in that way. When we saw chapter 12 where Satan being frustrated, the dragon being frustrated that he did not prevent Christ from coming. He did not prevent Christ from accomplishing his saving work and purpose. He then turns his sight onto the church. And he tries to put all of his efforts now against the church to destroy and defeat it. That is the backdrop to chapter 13 today. Um, we're going to be introduced to two more characters in chapter 13, specifically two beasts the best way I can describe these two beasts uh, is that they are two weapons, as it were, um, that Satan tries to use against the church, at the very least to slow the growth of the church, or at best to stomp out the church altogether. So, Revelation chapter 13, let's read the chapter together, and then we'll dive into it. Beginning in verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head, heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet was like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? 
And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has ears to hear, or anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to ta- captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must, must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword yet and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And it also, it, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, uh, you tell us right there in your word that this calls for wisdom. And so, We ask for it. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously without reproach. We know that this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. What sticks in my mind in those ascriptions is clear. It's your clear word. I understand that not every passage is as clear as every other. This one is certainly not as clear as most. But you did not reveal this to us to confuse us. And so I ask that you would give us help to see the truth here and you would give us minds to understand the truth that you tell us here and hearts to embrace and love love you in this truth and wills to obey uh, and heed this call for endurance and faith. And I ask that you'd give me help that I need to teach and give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the breakdown of this chapter is pretty simple. Um, you got the first beast and you got the second beast. And um, we'll consider the significance of each of those two beasts. But before we close, I do want to take a second and say a word, at least what I think, about that most mysterious number, 666. All right, this is an important chapter. We need to think about it carefully. So let's think first about the first beast. Uh, you don't get past the first verse, and you're introduced to this first beast. Let's read verse 1 again. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. 
with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. There are several things about that that I think we need to notice. First of all, I want us to notice how this beast is presented to us as being a tool of Satan. Whatever this beast is, it is a, it is a, a tool, a, a weapon uh, of Satan himself. And, and, and to see that, for example, look quickly at the last verse of the last chapter. Uh, the last verse of chapter 12, where we read in verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God, hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. And so you come, you, 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 you've got the, the dragon, Satan himself, like, like he's standing on the shoreline of the sea, right? And you come to chapter 13, verse 1, and, and the first thing you read is this beast rising out of the sea. And so um, the image is, is like Satan standing on the, on the shoreline of the sea, and he's calling forth this beast uh, to come torment and make war on the church. It is clear, and also... You saw in, um, uh, let's see, you, where, where, what verse was it? Oh, yeah, verse 2. Uh, to it, the dragon gave his power. He gave his throne. He gave great authority to this. So this is clearly a tool of Satan, whatever this beast is. But what is this beast? Um, well, to help us understand what this beast is, I think there's a couple of other things that we need to take note of. First is what we've already pointed out. This beast comes rising out of the sea. Does that mean anything? I think I'm gonna, we're going to inch our way to what it means. Um, I think just this mere fact of this beast rising out of the sea teaches us something. Uh, and, and here's, I believe, a couple of other passages help us interpret, begin to interpret this beast as having something to do with the nations of the world. The nations of the world. We'll look at one Old Testament passage and one New Testament passage that I think point us in this direction for understanding the first beast. So hold your place here first and turn back to Isaiah chapter 17. Isaiah chapter 17. And when you get to Isaiah 17, look at verse 12. Isaiah chapter 17, verse 12. And there... Isaiah writes, Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the what? The sea. Ah, they, the roar of nations. And they roar like the roaring of many waters. So right there, there's an Old Testament precedent for the, the peoples, the nations of the world, somehow thundering like the roar of the sea. Um, the roaring of many waters, the mighty waters into the sea is, is described. Mighty nations, perhaps even governments of the nations. Okay, that's one example. Go back to the book of Revelation now, and, and while you were there, just flip over to chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. And when you, when you get to chapter 17, look at verse 15. And in Revelation 17, 15, you see an angel telling John, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So, you can go back to 
chapter 13 now. It's clear that this first beast, from what we know about it so far, just the fact that it's rising out of the sea, has something to do with the nations of the world. Um, and, 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 and not only that, Tom Schreiner, who was one of my seminary professors, New Testament scholar, one of former pastor of mine, he, he notes in his commentary that in Hebrew thought, the sea was often associated with chaos and with evil and danger. So, I mean, obviously the dragon is calling this thing forth. You know, it's not nice and kind. Um, this beast it has something to do with evil nations, evil power, evil governments perhaps. And I think that what the, the rest of what we see in verse 1 verifies that and gives us an even clearer picture and more specific that this first beast, if you're taking notes, here's what I think it represents in full. It represents oppressive, oppressive governments um, of the nations of the world. This first beast, it, it, it symbolizes oppressive governments of the nations of the world. Oppressive of whom? Of Christians, of the people of God. And how do you get that? Well, to the to the first readers of this book, the description of this beast in verse 1 as having ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head wouldn't have come out of left field. I mean, if left field is Daniel chapter 7, then yes, it comes out of left field. But they would have, they would, that this description would have sounded familiar with them. It would have reminded them of Daniel chapter 7 where four different beasts are described. And, and the fourth beast in Daniel 7 sounds a lot like this one. It has, it has ten horns. Uh, it has diadems. It yells blasphemy. And in Daniel's prophecy, these four beasts uh, represent four different prominent and powerful kingdoms to come. Uh, the first beast is Babylon. The second beast is the Persian kingdom. The third beast is Greece under Alexander the Great. The fourth beast is the Roman Empire. And um, that would have been re very relevant to the original readers of this revelation. And the beasts in Daniel, especially the last one in Daniel 7, relentlessly persecutes the people of God. Here's what we read. You don't have to turn there. But in Daniel 7, 21, this fourth beast, it tells us, quote, made war with the saints and often seemingly prevailed over them. And in Revelation 13, 2, if you're looking at there, Daniel's descriptions of, those, of all of those beasts, you, you, this would, you would know this if you were familiar, really, and, and had studied the, the, the beasts in Daniel 7. But if you look at the description in verse 2, where it's, got, it's like a leopard and feet like the bears, mouth like lions. This is like John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like wrapping up all of the beasts in Daniel 7 into one. Right? Those were all descriptions of different beasts in Daniel 7, now of one great beast in Revelation. Um, with, and I think that shows you that in, in, in Revelation, the point here is, is not about any one of those kingdoms in particular. Even though the fourth beast in Daniel 7 is about the Roman Empire, it's not just about the Roman Empire. It, it, the Roman Empire is emblematic of all oppressive governments against the people of God who persecute the church. And don't forget, 
the fact that these oppressive governments are presented as a tool of Satan himself. Again, carefully, in verse 2, he says, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority to this beast to persecute the church. Now, take, take a step back for just a minute from that and, and just consider how this has played out in history in real life. And it, and it just has. Um, throughout world history, nations and governments have been instruments of terrible persecution against the church and the people of God. Um, obviously, Daniel saw those Old Testament examples leading up to the Roman Empire, and we see in the New Testament what the, 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 what the Roman Empire did to believers. But those, those kingdoms have been far from the only ones throughout history. And to this very day, the same thing persists in, in tyrannical and oppressive governments against Christians. I mean, Christians are persecuted in places like China, and they're persecuted in, in places like North Korea, and, and, and many, many uh, countries in the Middle East, and just all over the world. For, not always for religious reasons, just for satanic reasons, Right? Governments like these in our present world have, have, have incredible oppressive authority over the church. And in so many places, even today, the church languishes under that authority and oppression. But the point of the vision of this first beast is not just to make the reader aware uh, of Satan's influence in oppressive governments. If that was the whole purpose, here's what you're up against, you know. Um, then uh, <laughs> that would only discourage further a, a persecuted church. A, the church is persecuted already. But note that final call in verse 10. This is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. So knowing what this first beast represents, that is oppressive governments against them, what encouragement is given is it just, hey, here's a beast that Satan uses, or is there some kind of encouragement to be found in these verses? Yeah, I think there is. Notice in verse 3 that this beast has a mortal wound that appears to have been healed. And more on that healing in just a minute. What is this mortal wound that has been inflicted upon this beast? Cards on the table. I take it to be Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, Hebrews 2.14 says that through his death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25, it says that through his resurrection, Jesus destroyed every rule, every authority, every power, and made certain that a day is coming when he will put every enemy under his feet. Jesus said after his resurrection, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So I would say that, that that's a mortal wound to any kingdom of this world who says it has all the power, it has all the authority. As, as the people sing praise to this, who is like the beast, who can fight against it? I know someone, but they don't see it. So I take, I take the mortal wound of this, of this beast to be the objective victory of Christ through his death and resurrection. There is no literal healing from that wound uh, for a rebellious and oppressive nation. So what are we to make of this healing? If that's, if that's, 
if that's what the wound is, how can, what, what does it mean when it says his mortal wound was healed? And the people marvel at that. I take it, and again, this is just how I, how I read it. I could be wrong, but I take it to be uh, only apparent healing to a watching world. It, it is only apparently healed. Uh, how so? Um, notice carefully the, the, the wording of verse 5. This beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was given that mouth. And in, verse, in that same verse, it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And also in verse 7, it was allowed to make war on the saints. And verse 7, authority was given it over the peoples of the earth. Who gave it? Who is allowing it? God in Christ is allowing it. God in Christ is the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth by his resurrection from the dead. So Christ, I believe, is stringing these governments along. He is stringing them along, making them believe that they are strong, making them believe they are healed, making the unbelievers of the world believe it as well. Notice how verse 8, the people of the world worship this beast. And who is like the beast? They, yeah. But God is reminding his people in this passage that as frightening and as seemingly powerful as, this, as oppressive governments in this world may seem, he has not forsaken them, nor would he. He reminds the people in verse 8 that he has chosen them before the foundation of the world. Their names have been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. God will never leave his people. He will never forsake his people. He will judge and expose the most seemingly invincible and strong kingdom of this world, our own included. And they will bow and become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. You read that also in the book of Revelation. But in the meantime, until that day comes, one tool of Satan, at Satan's disposal to oppress the church, represented by this first beast rising out of the sea, is oppressive and totalitarian governments in the nations of the world. We may have a hard time resonating with that because we live in a very free place. There are plenty of people in the world that they would understand that very well firsthand. But there's a second beast mentioned here that we need to talk about briefly. Unlike the first beast, which was described as coming out of the sea, the second beast, which we meet in verse 11, came rising out of the earth. This is a second tool that Satan has at his disposal to try to destroy the church. And in this, this, this verse and the words that follow, in full disclosure, the commentator of Revelation that I've benefited from the most, uh, more than any other really, William Hendrickson, this is what he said in his commentary of this paragraph of Revelation. He said, and I quote, This is perhaps the most difficult paragraph in the entire book of Revelation. The main ideas are clear. The details are obscure. So, don't expect me to be clear on all the details either. Uh, I am in wholehearted agreement with his assessment. Thankfully, for our purposes, we are just trying to hit the high spots. 
and get the main ideas. And that much is clear. So let's get to it. When we look at this beast, we went to other passages to help us understand the first beast and it was rising out of the sea. Uh, that's always the best route to take. Let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? Let the Bible interpret itself. Let the more clear places help you understand the less clear places. And that's what we want to do here, too. That being said, it's not quite as easy with this beast as it was with the first beast. But I do think there are a couple of uh, passages that give us clues. For example, you know, the fact that the first and main description, despite the unclear other descriptions, this first and main description is that it arises out of the earth. That's verse 11. So what could that signify? Maybe a couple of other passages can help. Consider what James says in James 3.15. James 3.15. James says, and you can turn there if you want or you can just listen. James says in James 3.15, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. In that verse... What is being described as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic? Wisdom. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So, he's, he's talking about a kind of wisdom that is earthly. A, a wisdom that is unspiritual. A wisdom that is demonic even. In line with that, that was James 3.15, in line with that, but not quite as clear, is Philippians 3.19. When Paul talks about people, that's Philippians 3.19, when Paul talks about people who have their, quote, their minds set on earthly things. You put all that together, and there's a clear distinction then between the first beast and the second beast. While the first beast seemed to represent something physical, namely oppressive governments and, and authorities, the second beast seems to represent something immaterial, something non-physical, but yet somehow still wages war on Christianity and Christians. What could that be? It appears from the verses we considered it could be ungodly wisdom, um, ungodly ways of thinking, false religions, things like that. Things that capture our minds, turn us away from Christ. And in further support of that idea, look down at verse 14 in this difficult paragraph, at the very least. And in verse 14, notice that this beast is not, is not said necessarily to physically harm the church, is it, in verse 14? What does it do? What does it say he does in verse 14? It deceives. It deceives those who dwell on the earth. Its power is deception, not oppression. Why? Is it any wonder then? Is it any wonder at all while, there are, while the New Testament is so constant? in warning us against being deceived. I mean, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you, know that, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Galatians 6, 7. 
do not be deceived. God is not mocked. James 1.16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no one deceive himself. 2 Timothy 3.13, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Satan wants to deceive people and keep them blinded to the truth of the gospel. It's described as earthly here in Revelation. I don't think it's insignificant that James calls that earthly wisdom also unspiritual, demonic. Demonic. So what do you do? You guard your minds. Guard your minds. Guard what you look at. Guard what you set your eyes on, what you set your minds on. Stay in the Word. Stay constant in prayer. Stay constant in community. Don't remove yourself from the means of grace that God has given you in the church. The work of... We, we, we may not resonate with the first beast because our, our government yet is not... I wouldn't call it oppressive to Christians. But the, the work of the second beast is more at work where the church is comfortable. And that's where we are. It, 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 it works better where the first, where, where the first beast, it, it holds sway where the first beast is not so easily there. Right? And where the first beast is, perhaps the second can work there, but it's not vice versa. Now, having considered these two beasts in the chapter. Before we come to a close, I'm just thinking our way through this chapter. There's one more question I want to consider, and that is, what is up with the mark of the beast? Um, we need to try to understand this a little bit. Uh, and now, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think, and some of you may disagree if you studied it, and that's fine. We're probably both wrong. Um, near the end of the chapter, in verse 16, it talks about this mark. This, it's never called the mark of the beast, but we're talking about two beasts. And one beast has a mark, so it's a mark of the beast. And uh, in verse 17, it talks about that mark being the name of the beast or his number, the number of its name. Now, some have, some have t- said that, this, that if you add up the... Uh, Blah, 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 blah. It's like Nero. I don't think it's Nero. Um, Verse 18 says this number is 666. So countless interpretations have been offered for what this means. Just getting to the point here. It seems to me that the most reasonable explanation of what this this number is and what it it means, uh, it, it means that bearing the mark of the beast simply means belonging to Satan belonging to Satan Uh, nothing fancy but certainly not unheard of Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8 44 you are of your father the devil we already saw in the when it says here that uh, you will not be able to buy or, or do commerce kind of things if, unless you have the mark of the beast. We already saw that in the letters to the churches. 
where, where, where if they didn't belong to a certain trade guild, they couldn't, they couldn't shop in the markets, right? We see that. We see that going on all the time, even, even still today, simply because you belong to Christ. And I think that's, that's instructive here because notice in verse 16, verse 16 says symbolically the mark is on the forehead or the right hand or the forehead. Well, go ahead and look at the, the next chapter, chapter 14, verse 1, and look at how those who belong to God have the Lamb's name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Clearly not literal, by the way, but it carries the significance there of belonging to Christ. Bearing a mark signifies belonging to. Bearing the mark of the beast means belonging to Satan, belonging to the beast, belonging to Satan who's put his power into it rather than to God, to love it and serve it and worship it. That idea is repeatedly found in this chapter and in the next. But what about 666? Verse 18 says the number is the number of a man and the number is 666 without belaboring it. We've seen time and time again that um, in Revelation that the number 7 symbolizes completion and perfection. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the seven spirits of God. Um, we, and we've seen that six then falls just short of that. It falls, it represents incompletion. So we've already seen the sixth seal and the sixth trumpet. They represented judgments of God, but not the final thing of all things. It always came with the seventh of those things, the perfect consummation of Christ's kingdom. So I take this symbolism to mean that Satan, through these beasts, tries to mimic God, but he will fall short of succeeding along with all who belong to him. So in conclusion, um, like chapter 12, Chapter 13 continues to give us deeper spiritual background of, of the persecution and the difficulty that church faces in the world. And to the naked eye, it, 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 it may appear that hostile governments or hostile societies, false religions, false ideas, it may appear to the naked eye that they are winning. That they, they are all tools in the hand of Satan who is just as intent on stopping the church as he was stopping Christ to begin with. But he didn't succeed in that, and he won't succeed in stopping the church. And at the second coming of Christ, all of those things will be made plain to everyone. Uh, I, don't leave any, I didn't leave any time. It's the praise band's fault. They sang for far too long. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll go. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for your precious word. I thank you that whenever it tells us the hard things, it follows it immediately up with the encouraging things. Uh, just, just like in the Old Testament prophets, judgment is coming, but comfort, comfort, my people. And um, I pray that we would, uh, we would be constant in your word. I, I, do, I do feel like uh, the second beast is the one we do more constant battle with in our culture. And I pray that you would help us to be constant in your word, constant in prayer, 
never to separate those things. We pray your word. And uh, be constant in the means of grace in the church that you've given to us to stay faithful in our minds and in our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.